0: Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is uh, Adam and it's really good to have you with us in church this morning and it's my privilege to be able to uh, look at this portion of God's word for us today. But I'd like to begin by asking you if you have ever seen this movie or if you've ever read the book uh, which it's based upon, Catch Me If You Can. Now in this true story, Frank Abagnale runs away from home when he's just 16 years old. And this begins his life on the run and his career as a fraudster, a trickster. You see, he begins at this tender age of 16 and 17 and 18, he begins to forge checks. He pretends to be a doctor in an emergency ward. You wouldn't want to be treated by him. He posed as a lawyer. He even pretended to be an airline pilot so that he could get free flights all over the country. And throughout this time, he is relentlessly pursued by the FBI. And when he is eventually caught, he spends some time in Swiss and French prisons, and he's handed over to the American authorities, but on the plane that they're uh, transporting him back to America on, he manages to escape again and goes on the run. And so when he's finally caught for the second time, he's arrested and he spends five of his 12-year prison sentence in jail before before he's released early to become a consultant for the FBI. And today he's actually a highly sought-after security consultant. You see, Frank Abagnale spent much of his early life on the run. On the run from his past and on the run from the authorities. And today we meet a a character in the Bible who is on the run. But he's not just running away from home or his past or the police. He's running away from God. He's running away from who God has called him to be and what God has called him to do. And of course, I'm talking about Jonah. For the next four weeks, we're going to be having a a look at this Old Testament book called Jonah. We're going to be exploring his story. And I think most of us would be familiar with the story of Jonah. It's one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. But I also think that it's one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible. For many of us, we know the amazing details of the story, but perhaps we don't fully understand its amazing message. This is the way we uh, explain it in the series blurb, which you'll find in your growth group guide, which hopefully you received on the way in. Please grab one of those and hold on to it for this series. This is what the blurb says. It says, the book of Jonah is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, and for good reason. It involves a runaway prophet, pagan sailors, stormy seas, a repentant city, and of course, a big fish. But there is far more to this amazing story than just the amazing details. In fact, the story is not ultimately about the big fish or even Jonah. It is ultimately about our amazing God. It is about the depths of his grace towards both insiders and outsiders. And this is why we've called this series The Depths of Grace. Because the book of Jonah is going to give us a vivid, technicolor picture of the grace of God. Jonah, the rebellious prophet, he runs away from God, but God in his pursuing grace goes after him and uses him for God's glory and for the good of an entire city. Now, before we kind of dive in and, and take a, a look at Jonah, I think it'd be helpful for us to take a step back and and have a look at ourselves because I think we could admit that we are not too different to Jonah I think we could admit that we too like Jonah are on the run from God Now you might say to me Adam, I'm in church how could I possibly be running from God it's a beautiful day out there, I could be doing anything else and I'm in church, how could I be running from God Well, if you think back to Genesis chapter 3 and with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what did they do when they sinned against God? They ran away from God. They hid from God. They hid from his presence. And the truth is, humanity has been on the run from God ever since. And we do this in all different kinds of ways. Some of us are on the run from God, obviously and overtly. I mean, we just want nothing to do with God. We, we people curse God, ignore God. Others of us are, are on the run from God, but perhaps it's more subtle and more secretive. We might be externally religious. We might come to church. We might partake in kind of religious activities, but internally we have no desire for God, no love for God, no relationship with God. We have just enough involvement with God to kind of look the part externally, but internally, our heart's posture is away from God, leaning away from God. And you see, this is the great problem with humanity. We're all, in some way or another, on the run from God. Some of us are on, on the run from God because He has clearly called us to do something, but we don't want to do it. Maybe we're too afraid. And so we're running away from what God is calling us to do. We're on the run from God. And we see this illustrated for us in this story that we'll be looking at today, and especially in chapter 1, which we'll be exploring today and which we had read for us just a moment ago. And we'll look at this story under three main headings. Firstly, the call of Jonah in verses 1 to 2, the flight of Jonah in verse 3, and then the pursuit of Jonah in verses 4 to 16. What we're going to see is that Jonah is called to do something by God, but he runs away from it, and so God pursues him. So let's look at these uh, three headings. Firstly, the call of Jonah. Let me just read verses 1 to 2 for us again. Look at what we read there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, we're told elsewhere in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 14, that Jonah is a prophet. And the job of a prophet was to preach and to proclaim the word of God. And Jonah, we're told here, is called by God to go and preach against the great city of Nineveh. And by all accounts, it was a great city. Historians tell us that Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was huge. Apparently, it took three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. And apparently, you could ride three chariots side by side on top of the walls of the city. That's how thick they were. Huge city. But not only was it great in size, we're also told here in verse 2 that it was great in wickedness. And again, historians tell us that the Assyrians were brutally cruel. In fact, history tells us that they regularly skinned their enemies alive and then buried them in the sand. They impaled their enemies on poles. Even when they would invade other cities, they would kill every single person in the city, man, woman and child. They would behead them and then make a pyramid of heads outside the city as if to say, this is what you get if you mess with the Assyrians. Nice people. And so the Ninevites, they're part of this Assyrian empire and they were as well the enemy of the people of God. The Israelites, the people of God to whom Jonah belonged, they despised the Ninevites. They hated them. It's kind of like the animosity between Queensland and New South Wales at this time of year, except we're not talking about that today. (laughs) But if you were a prophet in that day, this is not the assignment that you wanted to get. God is calling on Jonah to go to the biggest, baddest, meanest city in the world and to call them to repent and turn to God. This would kind of be like going, being called to go to Berlin in the middle of World War II and to preach in the middle of the city that they should repent and turn to God. The best outcome is that you are going to be laughed at, mocked and run out of the city. The worst outcome is that you are going to be tortured and killed. And so Jonah is facing this situation. He's called by God to do something that on the surface seems Crazy and confronting and utterly difficult. Almost impossible. And of course, we know what happens. We know what Jonah does. He he runs away from God. He disobeys God and goes in the other direction. But before we look at Jonah's response, I think it's helpful to point out that we too often face a similar situation to Jonah that Jonah's facing right here. You see, like Jonah, God's word has come to us Very clearly. God has spoken to us through his inerrant, inspired word, the Bible. And I don't know if you've read it, or I don't know if you've looked through the Bible, but the Bible calls us to do some things that on the surface seem crazy and confronting and difficult. The Bible says to us, for instance, things like, Love your neighbour as yourself. The Bible says... Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Bible says, flee from sexual immorality. The Bible says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The Bible says that when we follow Jesus, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. The Bible calls us to do some things that on the surface seem crazy, confronting and difficult. The Bible calls us to do some things that naturally we don't want to do. And the reason I think that that we don't want to do them is because we like to believe deep down, and we would never say this out loud, but deep down we like to believe that we know better than God. We like to believe that we know what is ultimately best for us. I mean, if you have kids, you know what this is like. If you have kids, you are constantly telling your kids to do things that they don't want to do. Brush your teeth, eat your broccoli, take out the trash, do your homework, turn off the TV, stop hitting your brother, stop hitting your sister. Constantly telling them to do things they don't want want to do. And the reason that you tell them to do these things that they don't want to do, it's not to annoy them most of the time. It's for their good. It's because you want to raise kids and you want to equip them and train them to become responsible, godly, mature adults. But of course, they don't always recognise this, do they? And so they rebel against your commands because they think they know better than mum and dad. And when God calls us to do things that on the surface seem crazy, confronting and difficult, when he calls us to do things that we don't want to do, He's calling us to do them for our good. And in those moments, we really have one of two responses. We can trust in the wisdom and the goodness and the character of God. Or we can be like an immature child and we can trust ourselves. We can believe and conclude and think that we know better than God. And for Jonah, he's called by God to to go to Nineveh, to call them to repent, It's a crazy, confronting, difficult task that he's been been given. And we see his response in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah says, thanks God, but no thanks. Now... To show you how badly Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, have a look on the screen. There's a map there, and you can see there. That's Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is about 800 kilometres to the east of Israel, which is down there where Jonah was. Now, Jonah goes down to Joppa, and he boards a ship bound for Tarshish 3,000 kilometres in the other direction. Jonah really did not want to go to Nineveh. And he runs from God in completely the opposite direction. But the thing about running from God is that it doesn't really work. It's not really possible. Look at Psalm 139 verse 7. The psalmist writes and says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the implied answer, of course, is nowhere. There's nowhere you can go to escape the presence of God. Now, Jonah would have known this. He would have been very familiar with the Psalms. But in moments of fear, in moments of doubt, in moments of confusion, we don't always act rationally or act upon the truth of what we know. And so Jonah flees as far as he can go. He goes down to Joppa. He goes to the port, he looks for a boat heading in the opposite direction and lo and behold, he finds one. And this illustrates a significant spiritual truth for you and for me. And that is, if you want to flee from God, if you want to run from God, if you want to ignore God, there will always be someone or something ready to take you away from him. If you want to flee from God, there will always be a ship ready to take you away. And Jonah could have got to Joppa, or he could have got down to the port and, and, and found the ship and he kind of might have thought to himself, oh man, isn't that lucky? There's a ship going in the exact direction that I want to go. Maybe this is a sign that God doesn't actually want me to go to Nineveh. Maybe this is a sign that God's actually okay with me going to Tarshish. You see, let's admit, this is how we think sometimes. There are times when we do things that are clearly against the will of God. But because it feels good, because it opened itself up to us as an opportunity so freely, we assume that it must be the will of God for us. We sometimes even use this phrase that I'm not really sure where it comes from, but we say, well, God gave me peace about it. As if peace in our heart overrides the clear command of God's word. And we need to be really careful with this because it's dangerous to think in this way because the role of Satan, our spiritual enemy, is to give us peace about doing the wrong thing. To give us peace about disobeying God. Remember in Genesis 3 when Satan comes to Eve to tempt her, what does he say? It's okay. I mean, did God really say that? Is that really what God said? Don't listen to that. You'll become wise. You won't die. It's the role of our spiritual enemy to give us peace about disobeying God. And the peace in your heart about something that you may be doing, it may not be God's affirmation of what you are currently walking in. It may be Satan numbing your conscience to lead you down a dangerous path. Because if you want to run from God, there will always be a ship ready to take you away. One pastor puts it this way. He says, if you always allow your eyes to wander, there will almost always be a boy or girl who will return your flirtation. If you want out of your marriage, there will always be a too-good-to-be-true relationship that presents itself. If you tolerate greed in your life, there will always be a great deal on something to buy or a way to cheat or steal to get ahead. If you want to disobey God, there will always be somebody or something to help you. There'll be a ship to take you away. And this is what we see happening in the life of Jonah. He's on the ship and he's on the run from God. And the question we're left with now is, how will God respond? Will God say, well, all right, good riddance, Jonah. I'll find somebody else. No, look at what we see God does in verses 4 to 16. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, And such a violent storm arose and the ship threatened to break up. And so as this ship heads out to sea, heads out to Tarshish, a storm begins to rage. And this is not just a coincidence. The Bible tells us that God sent this storm. The Lord sent a great wind. And this storm that we see here teaches, three, teaches us three important lessons about what happens when we run from God and how God pursues us. The first is this to run from God, to disobey God, to ignore God, it always has consequences. It always means that a storm will eventually catch up with you. Now, it might not happen immediately. Even for Jonah, he's not immediately impacted by this storm. Remember in verse 5 we read that Jonah was asleep, in a deep sleep, below deck at the bottom of the ship. You see, often our sin and our disobedience, it can initially feel wonderful. It can feel like there's no negative impact. But the Bible tells us that it is coming. Again, Tim Keller says, initially, sexual immorality feels wonderful, but it masters you and you lose the joy. Initially, sitting around and harboring resentful thoughts, plotting and thinking and fantasizing about the demise of somebody feels good. But eventually, you're in a prison of bitterness. Sin always has a storm cloud attached to it. Now, of course, our sin has the ultimate storm cloud attached to it. The final coming judgment of God. See, if we look around today, we might think, well, it doesn't really look like sin and evil always has consequences. In fact, it looks like people get away with doing uh, horrific things all the time. But the Bible tells us that it's just not true. The Bible tells us that God has fixed a day upon which he will judge the world. And the judge of the earth will do what is right. See, sin always has consequences. You might not experience them immediately, but they will come. It's the first lesson this storm can teach us. The second is this. To run from God, to disobey God, to sin against God, it always affects others. In verses 6-10, to 10, we see that Jonah's not the only one on board this ship, is he? There are a group of pagan sailors who are on board this ship and they are terrified by this storm. Their lives are drastically impacted and affected by the sin of Jonah. And the truth is, the same dynamic is at play in our lives. You see, we may sin in private, but the consequences of our sin never stay private. For example, you may think that consuming pornography has no impact on anyone else other than you and your relationship with God. But the reality is that your private consumption perpetuates an industry built upon the exploitation of others. It undeniably affects your real relationships. It impacts the way you relate to your husband or your wife. It impacts the way you view other men and other women. And of course, it's not just sexual sin. We could talk about pride and greed and gossip and bitterness. Our sin and our disobedience to God, it always impacts and affects others. And this is why one of the greatest gifts that we can give to others, whether it's our families or our friends or our colleagues or our neighbours or our church family, it's for us to be walking close to God. It's for us to be walking in holiness. You might think of it this way, and maybe you've heard this illustration before, but think about it like an oxygen mask on an aeroplane. Now, aeroplanes will tell you that in an emergency, when the oxygen mask drops down, you have to do what seems counterintuitive. You have to put your own mask on before helping others, before helping your kids and helping those around you. And the reason being that if you're passed out, you're no good to anybody. You need to be alive so that you can help your children and others to stay alive. And here's the reality. If you are passed out spiritually, you cannot help those around you. You cannot give life to those around you if you have no life to give. And in fact, if you're passed out spiritually, you might be doing harm to those in your life and especially to those closest to you. When we disobey God, when we run from God, it not only affects us, it also affects others. The third lesson we can learn from the storm is this. The first is that our sin and disobedience always has consequences. The second is that it always affects others. The third is this. That God sometimes sends storms to us to wake us up and to bring us back. God sometimes sends storms to us to wake us up and to bring us back. See, by verses 11 to 12, Jonah has realised that this is not just any regular storm. He's realised that this storm has been sent by God and it's been sent because of him. And so he offers to be thrown overboard and initially the sailors to their credit refuse. But then the storm gets worse and they relent. They cast Jonah into the sea and immediately the storm begins to secede. The sea becomes calm. And look at what happens in verses 16 to 17. And the men, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now we'll get to the fish next week, but I just want you to see the result of this storm. Firstly, the sailors... These men who were worshipping idols and false gods, back in verse 5, they have now come to know and to worship and to offer sacrifices to the one true God, the God of heaven and earth. See, God can and does work in any and every situation to bring people to himself. Secondly, not only has this storm turned these pagan sailors to God, it's also returned Jonah to God. See, God used this storm to wake Jonah up and to end his rebellious running. And God, what this tells us is that God sent the storm not primarily to punish Jonah, but to reclaim him. To restore him. To wake him up and to bring him back. And friends, what this tells us is that sometimes the storms that God sends us in life are actually God's grace to us. Sometimes God sends us storms to wake us up and to bring us back. To stop us running to reclaim us and restore us before it's too late. Now, I'm not talking about all suffering. Sometimes we suffer and it has nothing to do with our disobedience. It's simply the result of living in a world broken by sin. But sometimes when we knowingly disobey God, God loves us enough to send us a storm, to wake us up and bring us back. And it makes me think of an old fairy tale that I read this week. And it goes like this. It says, there was a wicked witch in the middle of the forest and she had a wonderfully comfortable bed. When a travelling stranger would come, she would say to them, here, have something to eat and stay in my bed for the night. Now it was the most comfortable bed you could imagine, but if you were asleep in it when the sun came up in the morning, you turned to stone. And you became a statue in the witch's collection and you were trapped for all eternity. However, this witch had a servant girl. And one day, a young man came to the witch and she fed him and invited him to stay. When the servant girl saw the young man, she fell in love with him and she felt sorry for him. And so before he went to bed that night, she threw thorns and sticks and stones and thistles and all kinds of awful things under the mattress so that he couldn't sleep. In the morning, he wakes up before dawn, before the sun has risen. He's grumpy and he's irritable because he's had no sleep at all. And on the way out of this house, he sees the servant girl standing at the door and he yells at her before he slams the door. What kind of place is this? And she watches him leave and she says, The misery you know, it bothers you because you can't compare it to the misery your comfort would have brought you. Don't you see, those were sticks and stones of love that I threw in there. See, when God sends storms into our lives, When God puts things in our lives that reveal to us our true need, that reveal to us our spiritual bankruptcy, our dependence on him, don't you see that they are sticks and stones of love? They're storms to keep us awake lest we find ourselves falling asleep and turning to stone. And the powerful truth of Christianity is that not only does God graciously send us storms to keep us awake, but he's also endured the ultimate storm on our behalf so that we can belong to him forever. See, Jonah gives us a picture of the saviour who is to come. In Matthew 12, Jesus actually compares himself and his mission to Jonah. And there are similarities between them. Jonah was cast into the raging sea and it became calm. He was then swallowed by a fish, taken down to the depths of the ocean and then three days later he was brought back up to the land of the living. Jesus Christ was cast into the raging ocean of God's wrath on the cross and the great tempest of God against our sin became calm. And Jesus was buried in the heart of the earth for three days. Before he was, like Jonah, resurrected to new life. Now the difference, of course, was that Jonah went through all of that involuntarily and unwillingly because of his disobedience. Jesus Christ went through that voluntarily and willingly because of our disobedience. To bring us to God and to stop our running. And some of us are here this morning and we have been running from God. Some of us have been running obviously and overtly. In our heart of hearts, we have wanted nothing to do with God. And I simply want to say to you this morning, the reality is there is nowhere in this universe that you can run from God's presence. There is no refuge from God. We're told in the Bible that when Jesus Christ returns, people will be asking the mountains to fall on them so that they can hide from him no refuge from God. But the glorious good news of Christianity is that there is refuge in God because Jesus Christ has calmed the storm of God's wrath against your sin. You can run to God and you do not have to run away from him. Others of us are here this morning and we've been running from God a bit more subtly and a bit more secretly. On the outside, it looks like we've got it all together. But internally we know that we've been running from God. And the only way that you can be brought back to know him is through a deep experience of his grace. By seeing that Jesus Christ was cast into the storm of God's wrath against your sin. Not the person sitting next to you, your sin. So that you can experience the depth of God's grace forevermore. See, God is inviting us this morning to stop running and to come to him. The question is, will we stop, will we listen, and will we turn to him? He will receive us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we have run from you that we've thought we know better than you and that we can run our lives without you. Thank you that you pursued us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, those of us this morning who are still running, I just invite them in the heart of hearts now to say to you, Lord, Lord, I don't want to stop running. I don't want to run away. I want to run to you. And I know that I can because of what Christ has done for me. And so, Lord, we open ourselves up to you. We lay ourselves before you. And we pray that you might do a powerful work in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity now to respond by coming to Lord's Supper. And Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible reminder of the pursuing love of God. See, it reminds us that though we ran away from God, God ran towards us. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth, and Jesus lived the life that we have failed to live. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, so that we can receive the forgiveness and the new life that we have not earned. This is the way Lord's Supper is described in Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Lord's Supper is a visible reminder of the death of Christ upon the cross, where he calmed and stilled the wrath of God against our sin. And the elements represent what Christ has done for us. The bread, it represents his broken body. And the cup represents his spilled out blood. The price that was paid for our redemption to bring us back to God. And so let me invite the stewards to to come and the ones who will be uh, handing out the elements for us to get into position. And while they come, let me just ask or answer the question, who can come to the table? Those who can come to the table have recognised that they have run from God. They recognise that it was their sin that put Christ upon the cross. And those who come have recognised that Jesus Christ was God's Messiah. The one who paid the penalty for our sin upon the cross rose again so that we can know God and be restored to God. And those who live their lives in grateful obedience and thanks to God for all that he's done. And so if that's you, then come to the table this morning. Receive what Christ offers to us in the table. The ushers will invite you from the back to the front, and then you go back to your seat and we'll eat and drink together as the redeemed people of God. Come church, all things are ready.